The late Albert Einstein had a massive intellect. Decades before there was any way to prove or disprove them, he formulated the general and special theories of relativity, how time and space work together, how matter and energy fit together. I mean, it was astounding. Since, since then, these have been largely verified as true to the way the cosmos works. There is no question that Albert Einstein was wicked smack, as they say in Boston. He was one of the brightest men that ever walked the earth. But was he a wise man? Wisdom is a totally different critter. Albert Einstein was a total failure as a husband and father in so many other ways in life. Yet it's always seemed odd to me that people have the the habit of equating smarts and wisdom. People are, are still debating whether Albert Einstein believed in God. For me, it's simply a matter of curiosity. Others really care what Einstein believed about God. What a man with a massive intellect like Albert Einstein believed about God has to be weighed heavily in deciding whether there really is a God, doesn't it? If it can be shown that Albert Einstein did not believe in God, then for many atheists, that, that checks a box against the existence of God. The same situation was seen in more recent years with the brilliant mathematician Stephen Hawking, who died last year. In his book, Brief Answers to the Big Questions, Hawking concluded that we no longer need any idea of God to explain that the, why the universe exists. There are people who act as if this de decree by such a great mind should settle the issue of whether God, particularly the God of the Bible, really exists. Big headlines in the Telegraph. Stephen Hawking. God was not needed to create the universe. Well, I guess that's the end of the line for God. Don't you see that there's absolutely no connection be between someone being a mathematical genius and being qualified to comment on the existence of God? Would you consider Stephen Hawking a wise man? The Bible has a totally different take on the late Stephen Hawking. It's stated very, very, very clearly in Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have, have been seen have been understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. That's the Bible's verdict on Stephen Hawking and all those other smarty pants who 
deny the existence of the God revealed in the Bible. Such men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The power and divine nature of God are clearly seen through what he created. Those who ignore this evidence are without excuse. When people deny the existence of God, refusing to honor him or thank him, their thinking becomes futile and their hearts become darkened. Listen again to the statement that is so important for our discussion about wisdom this morning. Professing to be wise, they became fools. That's God's analysis. And in the end, his is the only judgment that counts. You see, in the Western world, we often divorce wisdom from being able to live in the real world under the laws of God. We have college philosophy professors. A philosopher is a lover, philos, of wisdom, Sophia. And yet, where is the first place a Christian's faith will probably be attacked in a, sexual, in a, in a secular college? Philosophy 101. Christian students get to have their faith systematically tracked by the lover of wisdom who is leading the course. It took me about five minutes on Google to find just such a course description. Listen to this. It's, it's priceless. The goal of this class is to teach you how to think critically about fundamental issues. The issues we will discuss concern the justification for our claims to knowledge, the existence of God, the problem of evil, the distinction between believing something for a reason and believing something on faith, free will and moral responsibility, and finally, topics in political and ethical theory, including justice, euthanasia, and abortion. Thinking critically about these issues will be hard for many of you. This is because, first of all, they're the, the sort that tend to draw strong opinions. Most of you probably believe in God think that it's okay to accept claims on the basis of faith, are confident that knowledge is possible. Take minds as non-material entities, believe that you have a free will and have strong views about what makes a society just or whether euthanasia is permissible. If you're like most people, you have not thought critically about these things. In fact, I bet that most of you believe in the God that your parents believe in and for no other reason that your parents raised you to accept their beliefs, and in turn, they followed their parents. Likewise, the strongest predictors of your views on justice and euthanasia are probably the views of your parents or peers. This brings us to a second reason why critical thought about fundamental issues is difficult. It requires that you suspend your belief in ideas that have probably seemed natural to you for so long. But finally, critical thinking is hard just because it's hard, religious, regardless of the issue under analysis. Critical thought requires examining assumptions that you may not realize you have. It requires imagining alternatives that may be far from obvious, and it requires an ability to assess the soundness of arguments. Ah! Oh. My dear Christian first-year college student, I wish you well in this class. If there's any question about how this lover of wisdom 
is going to treat those who hold firmly to the claims of the Christian faith, who believe that the Bible conveys absolute truth for all peoples of all times. Is there any question how that Christian freshman will be treated? When the New Testament speaks about wisdom, it's using the word wisdom in a much different sense, a sense of wisdom that's been shaped by the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, wisdom is inseparably linked to the heart and can be evaluated by a lifestyle that leads to godly, beneficial results out in the real world. No ivory tower academic philosophy is allowed in the Bible's definition of wisdom. The Bible's wisdom is a living wisdom. James is going to tell us that the wise man, the wise woman, is a man or woman who fears God and lives a life characterized by humility, godliness, harmonious relationships. Apparently, James was aware of some professed believers who thought of themselves as wise and understanding, or other people thought of them as wise and understanding. James says that you don't measure wisdom, as the Bible speaks of wisdom, only by what happens in the brain. This this three-pound piece of meat between your ears. There can be and are, for example, men and women who can defend all the major doctrines of the Christian faith, but who in God's eyes are fools. Because all of their good theology isn't touching the way they live. Practically, how they conduct their relationships in the church of Jesus Christ. If you're truly wise, the Bible, in the Bible sense of the word, every area of your life will be affected. Now, before showing us what real wisdom, legit wisdom, looks like, James gives us a picture of lying wisdom. Remember earlier in James when we were talking about this little two-ounce hunk of muscle and mucous membrane? The tongue? James exposed the tongue as a a restless evil, full of deadly poison. He showed how the same tongue can be used to bless God and curse people made in the image of God. James called the tongue a fire, a world of iniquity. Again, I I just wish James wouldn't pull his punches and just tell it like it is. Just in case we can't make the connection on our own, James identified the real source of the evil of the tongue. He said that the untamed tongue is set on fire by hell. So destructive speech is demonic in its origin. James also fingers the source of lying wisdom. It comes from exactly the same place. Listen again. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. So lying wisdom has the same source, the same fuel source as the untamed tongue. It's fueled by the fires of hell itself. 
So we've got a man or woman who likes to think, well, I think I'm pretty wise and understanding. Yet what's the truth if we look into the heart of this man or woman? James says we see a whole septic tank full of wicked worldly motivation. If you could look into this person's heart, you could see that he or she is controlled by bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. Listen, if, if you see, if I see even a hint of these in our own hearts, that should be an immediate warning sign. I think envy is a better word, a uh, better translation for the word in this context. What's envy? Envy is wanting something that someone else has. Envy is at the heart of all kinds of destructive sins. Adultery starts where? With coveting your neighbor's wife. Stealing starts with envying what others have. Selfish ambition is another rotten, wicked motivation. Whenever you're trying to succeed at the expense of another person, it shows ungodly motivation. Again, look for the, the slightest hint of this in your own heart, as I do in mine. Do you get bent out of shape because someone else is recognized, but you're not? Do you spend money you don't really have so that you can keep up with others? This kind of twisted wisdom is contrasted with the wisdom that comes from above, from heaven itself. Lying wisdom is earthly, natural, demonic. Bible teacher Doug Moo sums up the ugly heart revealed in lying wisdom. In some, this false wisdom, which does not lead to good works and humility, is characterized by the world, the flesh, and the devil. In each of these ways, it is the direct antithesis of the wisdom that comes from above. Heavenly in nature, spiritual in essence, divine in origin. We lived out in the country in Vermont, and we had a septic system. You've never had a septic system, you haven't lived. We didn't realize that we had a leach field that had failed until one day raw sewage started bubbling up in our basement. I mean, it was a catastrophic failure, and, and it was an expensive failure. I think we spent over $10,000 remedying it. Uh, I've said that the heart filled with lying wisdom is like a septic tank filled with all kinds of stinking, rotten, putrid filth. Do you think that that filth is going to stay inside? No, it's going to break out somewhere. When it breaks out in a church, it's just about as ugly as it gets. James says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Some of you may have gone through an ugly church split. Some of you have experienced firsthand what can happen when a few ungodly, self-important people start stirring the pot, complaining, backbiting, gossiping, slandering, grumbling. Perhaps you've experienced an elder or deacon or choir director building his or own power base in the church. 
or a pastor exercising heavy-handed authority. You and I need to be so careful of what's in our hearts. Because no matter how careful we are, wicked motives in the heart will pour out in destructive words and deeds. We need to be careful. It's easy to sit back and say, well, well, I hope we never get any people like that at harvest. Now, the reality is that the seeds of all those terrible sins are right here, right in our own hearts. And we need to be so careful that there's not a hint, not the slightest whiff of envy and selfish ambition, not a single suggestion of divisive attitudes, nothing that would pollute your own heart and then spill out to poison the church. Paul has a wonderful antidote to the lying kind of wisdom that's demonic in origin, divisive in spirit, destructive in its results. It's the legitimate wisdom that comes down from heaven and was lived out on earth in the Lord Jesus Christ. If we had more time this morning, I'd take you on a tour of the Old Testament book of Proverbs. As I say, the the, the New Testament is just reflecting the understanding of wisdom that's, that's already there in the Old Testament. The Old Testament book of Proverbs, you get a good feel for the Old Testament concept of wisdom. The book of Proverbs, particularly Proverbs 8, contrasts wisdom and folly. The writer of Proverbs portrays wisdom and folly as two women. The woman folly is loud and boisterous. She's constantly trying to lure the simple away from God's law and into sin. Following the woman folly eventually leads to death. On the other hand, the woman wisdom pleads with the simple to follow her way. A way that leads to life and godliness. The contrast between worldly wisdom and God's wisdom could not be any greater. One comes right up out of the pit of hell. The other comes down from heaven a reflection of the wisdom of God himself. When he walked on this earth, Jesus Christ gave gave us a stunning picture of what true heavenly wisdom looks like. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, would be characterized by heavenly wisdom. Listen, this is Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. Then a A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So so you see, as Christians, we don't pursue wisdom as some kind of abstract Christian virtue but as part of the beautiful character of Jesus Christ, on whose character we're called to model our own lives. Jesus Christ is our endless source of true spiritual wisdom. Listen carefully to what the Apostle Paul had to say about worldly wisdom and true wisdom from above. You may want to follow along in 1 Corinthians 1. 
verses 18 through 25. Here Paul demolishes worldly pretensions to wisdom and reveals the true heavenly wisdom that was revealed on earth in Jesus Christ. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the call, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. One of the most delightful men I have ever met was Stan Lindbergh. Stan and his wife were missionaries in China and Japan for 40 years. He was the last Swedish missionary expelled from China in 1951. He he helped to open missions work in Ethiopia, meeting personally with Emperor Haile Selassie. I met Stan several times when he was in his mid-80s, early 90s. He lived as a widower at Elam Park Baptist Home in Cheshire, Connecticut. Uh, There's no wonder why they chose Stan to be an ambassador for the, the residents of Elam Park. I mean, this man lived an incredible life serving the Lord. Yet, despite having lived about, I don't know, Ten times the life any of us will ever live. A a life of great impact for the cause of Jesus Christ. What struck you most about Sten was his gentle spirit and his deep humility. You know, as far as I know, the world's news media never reported on what Sten had to say about God. But I take his testimony over that of the greatest celebrity, the most respected philosopher, the brightest scientist, because Stan was a truly wise man. He had experienced God's reality during his lifetime in marvelous ways. James says that the person who is truly wise will demonstrate the heavenly origin of his wisdom in the gentleness or meekness of wisdom. Wise Greeks in the first century saw meekness as a weakness. Not much has changed. I mean, how many of us could say, becoming meek is one of my highest goals in life? No, I think most of us would somehow link meekness and weakness as well. 
The reality is that each of us should aspire to be more meek. The Bible rates godly meekness as a great virtue. Moses was a great leader who brought the Israelites out of Egypt, led them in the wilderness for 40 years. You want to hear the Bible's testimony about Moses? Numbers 12.3. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. There's a testimony that's even more important than that. It is, it's in one of the most tender invitations to faith, to faith that Jesus Christ ever gave. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That word translated gentle in the NASB is the same word James uses. Jesus Christ was meek, gentle, humble, lowly in heart. And yet in Jesus Christ, that meekness was combined with a firm commitment to the truth, great power, majestic authority. Meek is not weak. Meekness is the humility that is the mark of every truly wise man or woman of God. James goes on to sketch for us the character of every truly wise man or woman or child. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. The Apostle Paul talks about the fruit of true wisdom in the heart of every true believer in much the same way. This is in uh, Colossians 3. So as those who've been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. You you hear it? It's that same sweet, humble, meek, patient spirit that flows out of heavenly wisdom. What would a church body filled with believers like this look like? It's, It's going to be a wonderful place to be. It's going to be a refreshing oasis from the constant bickering, backstabbing, gossip, revenge, impatience, arrogance of the world. Just as the filth of demonic wisdom pollutes everything it touches, so the balm of heavenly wisdom has a healing effect on all who come in contact with it. Oh, I'll tell you, whenever I had to say goodbye to Stan Lindbergh, I was sad. He he reeked of the aroma of Jesus Christ. He was a a breath of life wherever he went. I want to be like Sten when I grow up. 
Please do not read James in the wrong way. James is not saying that heavenly wisdom is something nice to have. Demonic wisdom and its fruit is a mark of an unbeliever. Heavenly wisdom and its fruit is the mark of a believer. The longer you've been a believer, the more your life should be characterized by these sweet, pure fruit that grow in the soil of heaven. Like Sten Lindbergh, you will spread the aroma of Jesus Christ wherever you go. What does that philosopher, teaching philosophy 101, tell you that you need to do in order to be wise? You just need to suspend, lay aside all your cherished beliefs, take his hand, and let him lead you into the wonderful world of wisdom. What does the Bible say about the path to true wisdom? It's found in Psalm 111.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. You don't get real wisdom by suspending your belief system. Real wisdom comes from heaven and begins with the fear of the Lord. True wisdom is not nourished on the soil of skepticism and empty worldly philosophy. True wisdom is nourished by the trustworthy word of God. I was just reading Psalm 19 this morning. Psalm 19.7 tells us, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Do you leave a trail of discord and destruction in your wake, or do you leave a trail of righteousness and peace? If these godly qualities that James talks about are not controlling your life to the extent they should, what should you do? Well, James has already given us one answer. You may have forgotten since it's in the opening verses of the book. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. We, we often quote that verse in terms of, okay, I need, I need wisdom to know where to go to school or who to marry or whatever. This is, this is really talking about wisdom with a capital W that we've been talking about this morning. The increasing challenge of caring for my 100-year-old mother has brought to light some very ugly heart attitudes that sometimes erupt into unkind words and actions. What should I do? What should you do when you see these things? Confess your sin. Heavenly uh, plead, humbly plead for his heavenly wisdom to control not just your mind, but your heart, your tongue, your actions as well. If you really want him to transform you, he has already promised He will do it. King Solomon was known as the wisest man on earth, yet his wisdom left him 
when he married foreign wives who led his heart to follow after many foreign gods. In later life, Solomon, wise King Solomon, became a fool. Jesus Christ was and is greater than Solomon. His wisdom stayed with him even on the cross where you hear him asking the Father to forgive those who were abusing him and killing him. His death on the the cross looked like a foolish and weak plan to rescue us from our sin. And yet the cross was the pinnacle of the power and wisdom of God. Indeed, as we read earlier, Jesus Christ is the power and wisdom of God. It's only as God shapes our minds and hearts to be like his son that we can hope to attain true wisdom and its sweet fruit. Yes, James is brutal. He's brutal in exposing our wicked hearts. But it's so that we'll cry out to God for his grace and mercy and for his power to transform our hearts so that we show true wisdom by reflecting the character of his son. Let me read the end of the passage I read earlier from 1 Corinthians 1. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you're not yet a true follower of Jesus Christ, The Bible tells you where your journey must start. Not with your hand in the hand of a philosophy professor. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Jesus Christ is God's wisdom in human flesh. It's in Jesus Christ alone that true wisdom is found, as well as righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Those things that you need to be right with God. The truth truth of the gospel is able to make you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. And dear brother and sister in Christ, know that everything, everything, everything you need to produce the sweet fruit of wisdom is to be found in him and him alone. Let's pray.